We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Hello and welcome to I'm Listening. I'm Morning Magic's David O'Leary. Thanks for being here. I'm hosting this local hour of Odyssey's I'm Listening programming not only as a morning show host on Magic, but also as a board member and volunteer with the Mass Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It's an organization I volunteered with for many years since the death of my cousin Paul by suicide in 1995. I also live with depression. I don't talk about that too much on the radio, but that's what the next couple of hours are all about. Suicide and mental health affects so many of us. It's time we talked about it in an open and honest way. Creating a culture that's smart about mental health can save lives and improve so many more. In the next hour, we'll hear from the Commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health, Brooke Doyle, on recent legislation signed here in the Commonwealth designed to increase access to mental health care and so much more. We'll also talk with Dr. Matt Nock, Chair of Harvard University's Psychology Department, on the importance of research in preventing suicide. And Jessica Vanderstadt, Executive Director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Massachusetts Chapter. First, though, a conversation with Karen Carrera, who lost her son Nathan to suicide in 2018. Karen will speak about the experience of losing someone to suicide and about the importance of sharing your story with others. Thanks for being here. We're glad you're listening. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. You're listening to I'm Listening, and I'm David O'Leary from Magic 106.7. Karen Carrera is a mental health advocate. She's a suicide prevention educator and advocate and public speaker. She's a, a clinician. She's a volunteer with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and she is a suicide survivor. She lost her son, Nathan, who died by suicide in March of 2018. Karen, thanks so much for being with us and for sharing your story. How are you? I'm doing okay, David. Thank you for having me. You've told Nathan's story before. You say he was at 15. He was a great athlete. He was a budding musician, a very talented artist. And he was also someone who struggled with his mental health. He was depressed from day to day. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little more about Nathan, if you would. Sure. Nathan, well, he was very tall. <laughs> very tall and very handsome. And, um, you know, he had he had a lot of challenges since being born, like from a baby. Um, he had life-threatening food allergies that, you know, as a one-and-a-half-year-old, I learned how to give him an EpiPen. And we looked at everything he ate and read the labels and worked to protect him 
in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, walking around and going to school or going to birthday parties or even in our own house, making sure that what he took in as nourishment um, wasn't going to harm him. And I mean, I think that's a level of pressure <laughs> just to do that. Sure. And so when Nathan got older, we, you know, we thought we managed this pretty well. And I made peace with the fact that I couldn't protect him all the time and that I would do the best I could to educate him on how we were managing to keep him safe as an adolescent, a youngster. And as he moved into being an adult, that that would be his responsibility and that I can't control everything. Right. And so that was a lot of the work we did. And when he, he entered into his freshman year in high school and his moods shifted some and his eating habits shifted and some isolation surfaced and some you know, struggles with the, the social pieces of being in high school. You know, I, I'm looking at it through a different lens. And then we entered into our journey in the world of depression and mental health. You're a, you know, you're a clinician, and so you're aware that mental illness and depression, you know, that these things exist. Can you talk about what it was like to sort of see that in your child and have sort of come to the realization that this is beyond just sort of protecting him from food allergies? We, we might have other things to address here. Sure. Jack Jordan is a suicide prevention godfather, I guess you could call him that. And and his phrase, the tyranny of hindsight, mm. is something that we talk about a lot in this field, that you didn't know what you didn't know when you didn't know it. For me, with my clinical training, I knew signs of depression. I knew signs of this and, and signs of struggle. And when they surfaced for Nathan, I felt like we saw them and we did what we needed to do and and took the steps to help him. But never in that process did I ever connect the thought of he might die by suicide to that experience. And so getting a therapist, going to primary care as a first step, finding medications that would help him, um, talking about him, telling him we loved him, you know, more, um, being available for when he needed help, interventions with the school, setting things up so that he had supports and the folks who were working with him were aware that he was struggling. Uh, but never in any of that process did I think that he would take his life. Just, I, I never, it didn't, it wasn't a, a real thing mm. in the realm of a personal experience. I know that happens. Hypothetically, I know suicide was right. real. Sure. Right. But not not something that was going to be in the realm of my life or mm-hmm. his. What did support look like for you uh, from your friends and your family after Nathan died? Well, we're very lucky to have a network of people that spans multiple states. I would say, you know, New England for sure, uh, and a community of helpers. So, you know, we live in the Western Massachusetts area and our friends and our family from here are close by and integrated into what we do. And I have a, you know, a brother and sister who are right by our sides helping us through the whole thing. And then, as I mentioned in other conversations I've had, Nathan was a, a remarkable skier. He, he very talented, very fast, uh, alpine downhill racer. And so we had this ski community in Vermont 
So, you know, we spent our, our winters in Vermont watching the kids ski. And that was a community that I knew was important and supportive, but had no idea how Nathan's death would impact them mm-hmm. as much as it did. For Nathan's services, when we are in a little bit of a, a lighter mood and we can think back on it, you know, Vermont, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, all of those states came out to support him. We had we had a, a church full and then some. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that support... Uh, very moving and, you know, something that has definitely been a help in us surviving this tragedy. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I've, you know, shared before uh, my family's experience losing my cousin Paul to suicide. This was 20 something years ago. And, and it wasn't something that we talked about very much at all. And so it sort of got put away, you know, yeah. and kind of put in a drawer and um, sort of everybody kind of dealt with it the way they, they kind of dealt with it. But it sounds like you had a little bit of a different experience. Was there any sort of, wait a minute, what happened to Nathan? I had no idea. He Was there any of that? Or it sounds like your circle sort of knew perhaps that he struggled. And Yeah, the inner circle knew that he was he was having struggles, but his outward face was different. Yeah, you know, of he went to school. I mean, his grades, he struggled with his grades. Um, but he was playing football. He was showing up for practices. He skied the best he skied the weekend before he died. It's the best race he's ever had mm. laughing, you know, but who would have put those two things together yeah. right now? I know now I know a lot more than I used to know. Mm. And so when people learned that he took his life, it was not just a 15-year-old passing. It was a 15-year-old passing, and they took their life. Right. And so it was multi-layered with that shock. And my, my husband and I decided that we were not going to cover up the fact that it was a suicide and, and talk openly about it, because if we can share Nathan's story, then maybe we can help others signs and symptoms and, and risk factors and warning signs and all of that stuff um, so that they didn't feel or be caught in a place like that we were. Yeah. You are, and, and we've talked about this before, you are of the belief that talking about suicide can really help prevent suicide. Are we, are we getting there? Are we getting to the place where we're able to address mental health and mental illness and suicide in a responsible, healthful way? I think so. Uh, You know, I've been doing the clinical work for a very long time and absolutely COVID was something that shifted and changed our world and the way people think about things. And it was a very traumatic time. But if you look for a silver lining in things, what did COVID do? It elevated the conversation around mental health and suicide to Places like I, I've not seen in my career. There are commercials that are talking about, you know, here's how you get therapy. There is unprecedented legislation being passed, has been passed, being passed, and is will be passed, and funding to support the mental health and wellness of all of our citizens, youth to older adults. Mm. And so... Talking about it has brought it to the surface. It's, you sweep it under the rug and you're blocking access to that information. We talk about it and we put it out there. Yeah, it's hard to understand. It's hard to absorb. It's hard, hard work. But it makes people think we could do better. 
you know, here's a place where, you know, we can add more supports. Or if you couldn't get the support, why? And how can we make that better? And so all of the conversations we're having around that and the supports that are available is definitely through AFSP. The walks were my first introduction into a network of people who understood my experience. Mm. You know, I walked I walked to the field and I saw, what, 2,000, 4,000 people? Um, there were a lot of people that day, and I thought, oh, my goodness, everyone is here and feels the pain that I feel. Yeah. I, and that brought it to the reality of absolutely I'm not alone. Uh, and then there's power in that. So much power in that. It is so compelling to be able to sort of be in the presence of someone who's kind of walked in those shoes and who understands really what it is that you're going through. You spoke of the walks. We're going to talk to Jessica from AFSP in, in just a bit to mm-hmm. talk about the walks, which take place throughout September and October, not just here in the Boston area and Massachusetts area and New England area, but really all across the country that bring together those who are impacted by suicide, those who have a similar story to tell. And it's tremendously powerful to get those individuals together and to be able to share your story and to hear other people share theirs. Yeah. I also think that because suicide is so hard to talk about, and, and there are lots of cultural considerations of why it's hard to talk about, and that has to be factored in. In the same way that we look at trauma-informed care, I think we need to look at culturally, you know, culturally informed care. Mm-hmm. But to put the words out there and to put a real story and a real person in, onto a situation that is really hard helps people move through that discomfort to a place of of helping and, and moving forward, right? There's lots of myths about suicide. You say the word suicide, you're going to give that idea to somebody. Right. That's not true. Right. You know, research is showing that that's not true. It, there's lots of those kinds of things, right? And so bringing it out in the... It, to the counter of that, you have a conversation and ask someone if they're struggling and they're thinking about taking their life. In some instances, it's a relief. You made a you can make a connection with this person and give them a chance to tell their story. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And can take the silence of mental health stigma. And we're breaking that. Mm. Karen, I'm interested in, you know, over the the last, whatever it's been, five, eight years or so, the passing of notable people. Robin Williams was one for me personally, but more recently, Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade or Chris Cornell. And people who may not sort of be thinking, they just don't have suicide or mental health or mental illness on their radar, but somebody like that dies by suicide. And and. I just, I guess I wonder if people don't think, wow, if that person can be struggling and I I thought they were so happy, they had so much success. How, how does that happen? How does that impact you personally? You know, when, when your family hears about someone who who died by suicide, does it become, oh, everybody's going to be asking me about suicide now. I'm the go-to person or what? Well, that, yeah, that does happen. And I'm happy to feel those questions and be in a position of strength to engage in those conversations. The perspective that uh, that what I gain from hearing the stories and and what I learn from you know hearing that the media things is that suicide doesn't discriminate, right? And that mm. that's something that we have to make as a very clear and strong point to the folks we are looking as support networks. Um, it doesn't discriminate. And there's a continuum of mental health and wellness, right? And so 
I know that ASSP just has this new video out about the face of depression. You know, you can have an outward facing happy person, of course. all the money in the world, all of the, you know, status and famous and 17 record labels and all this stuff. Yet on the inside, they're a completely different person and, you know, very, very sad. Yeah. And the misconception that those two are, are together, right? That, what you see on the inside is what you also see on the outside. That's not true either. And so for us to be aware of shifts in behavior, aware of changes and in, in subtle nuances that maybe, you know, have you say, wait a minute, that that's not how, did you hear what they had to say? Mm-hmm. I mean, those are words that are concerned, like ask the question, mm-hmm. you know, are you struggling? Are you thinking about taking your life? I'm here. I'm listening there is help. I think that's a really, really important point. And, and something you said a moment ago about asking someone and using that word suicide isn't going to make someone think about suicide, especially if they're in a suicidal crisis or if they're at a, uh, having real mental health problems. If they're struggling, you asking them and using that word shows a level of concern and gives them a chance to tell their story and open up just a little bit. But you're not going to put you're not going to plant the idea in anybody's head. No, and it's an understanding of someone's desperation. Mm-hmm. Considering suicide is something that happens to people when the desperation and the pain gets so overwhelming that there aren't any other viable solutions or what they may consider viable solutions to feel better, mm-hmm. right? And so acknowledging and being present in someone else's pain and that they can be seen in that um, can be incredibly transformative and helpful in the journey towards health. Well, just a minute or two left. You you mentioned a couple of tips on, on reaching out and it really is. It's a pretty easy thing to do to say to somebody, I'm concerned about you. How are you doing? You've, you've been acting a little bit out of character or, you know, what, however you want to put it, those are the things you observe. Reaching out really is, it's an easy thing to do, but it's such an important thing to do. Any other sort of tips or approaches, things you might recommend if folks listening might be concerned about somebody? I would say that if you feel like you haven't talked to that person or if you know you haven't, a text, a hello, I'm thinking of you. Uh, and as benign as that might seem in your efforts to help, it could mean the world of difference in someone's life that day. Um, and so don't think it's a frivolous task to send a text. You know, that's what, three seconds, five seconds? Take it. It could mean the difference in someone's day. Tremendous upside, very little downside. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Karen Carrera is a mental health advocate, suicide prevention educator. She's a clinician. She's also a, a volunteer and board member with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Massachusetts chapter. On behalf of Nathan, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us and being a part of I'm Listening, Karen. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's one of the gifts that he gave me, uh, uh, and I'm happy to share it with others. And uh, it's always a delight to talk with you, David. Thank you. Hi, it's Sue Tab from Magic 106.7. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. Asking someone directly if they are thinking of suicide will not make them suicidal and can actually help. If you're struggling or know someone who is, call 988 or text 741-741.
You're listening to I'm Listening at Magic 106.7. I'm David O'Leary. We're taking this time to talk about mental health because talking about mental health really does save lives. Somebody who knows a, a great deal about mental health is Brooke Doyle, who is the commissioner of the Mass Department of Mental Health, which, by the way, is the state mental health authority, assuring and providing access to care and services and support for all of us here in the Commonwealth, individuals of all ages, helping all of us to live and work and and be vital parts of our community. Commissioner Doyle, welcome to I'm Listening. It's nice to speak with you. Thank you, David. It's wonderful to be here with you, and I'm grateful for your interest and participation in spreading the good word about how important mental health is. You know, we talked about a year ago for this very program, and we were in the throes of the pandemic at the time. We were in what we thought was the middle of the pandemic. It sort of feels like we're at the end, although no one's really sure. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the last couple of years has done to our mental health, but, but also to people's willingness and awareness of, of mental health. I sort of maintain that as terrible as the last couple of years have been for so many, for so many reasons, it's opened up conversations about mental health that we weren't having before. That is one of the pleasant outcomes of the pandemic. It encouraged people both to more openly talk about how they're feeling at a mental health level because there was so much uncertainty and loss and fear and anxiety that it became a common experience. And as the common experience encouraged people to more openly acknowledge what they might be feeling, it also then opened a conversation about what to do. Yeah, Yeah, I know people who in a... In a million years, I could never have imagined them talking about anxiety and depression and and whatnot. And of course, over the last couple of years, it's something so many of us have been contending with that uh, it's kind of nice to see people a little bit more open about it, which is a good thing. It is. And one of the things that COVID has given us as an ongoing part of our, our work of recovery is that we can pay attention to our mental health at earlier and earlier points now. Mm -hmm. One of the messages that's really important for me to share out with everybody is that early identification of any mental health concerns leads to better outcomes for treatment. So it's really, really important that we encourage people not only to talk to each other, but to also seek help if they feel that there's something of concern. You make an excellent point. I, you know, I'm fond of saying I, I had uh, knee surgery a couple of years ago. I told everybody I knew I was having a minor procedure on my knee. I told people I didn't know I was having a minor procedure on my knee. The physical stuff, we have no problem sharing that information. It's often the mental health stuff. And we're getting there, but there's still some more work to be done in terms of talking about our mental health the same way we talk about our physical health. Absolutely. Mental health is healthcare. And the more that we can normalize the experience of both talking with each other about our mental health, seeking assistance or treatment for our mental health, and then in turn, helping people to understand that treatment can work, that treatment brings us to a place in our lives where we function better, feel better, get involved with each other in relationships, our work, everything begins to improve. 
We had the good fortune to be, or I should say, I had the good fortune to be seated next to you a couple of weeks ago at, at a bill signing at the State House for the Mental Health ABC Act, which is really this comprehensive act signed by the governor to do so much to improve access to, to care in the Commonwealth, to mental health care in the Commonwealth. This is, uh, there's so much in this bill, but it has been in the works for a great deal of time. Um, do you want to take a moment and maybe talk about some of the, the provisions in the bill and how it improves specifically access to care for schools and for those with disabilities and in prisons and whatnot? I would love to. Thank you. The Addressing Barriers to Care Act is all designed to encourage people to seek treatment, but more importantly, addresses the barriers that have limited people's access to treatment in the past. And as you pointed out, these problems are things that people have been working on for some time. But globally, what all of the sections in this act do are to address the barriers that have made it difficult for people to access treatment and also address the barriers structurally that have limited our ability to achieve true parity and to allow mental health care to be experienced and paid for in ways that are similar to physical health. So all of these sections address different problems that were limiting how people either access treatment or how treatment is paid for. So it makes it possible for us to reach people in communities and places where we've sometimes not always had access. And it aligns fully with the Baker Polito administration's reforms, the roadmap uh, for behavioral health, which is a new system of access. So I'd like to just describe a couple of those components. Yeah, please. Included in the reforms are a 24-7 helpline. The helpline will link people to both urgent and crisis but also ongoing treatment. And it can do that through a network of community behavioral health centers, designated community behavioral health centers that will be operating throughout the Commonwealth. With these new components, the behavioral health system will become more accessible on a 24-7 basis, including urgent care, which we have for physical health, and this will create a corollary for behavioral health. Boy, I love it. I, you'd mentioned mental health parity at the top of your remarks here. I, I wonder if we could take just a moment to sort of describe what that concept is, because it was something I didn't quite understand until a couple of years ago. We all have insurance, if, if we have insurance through work or health insurance of some kind. If you have insurance... If you have insurance to cover, you get a broken arm or, you know, you want to go to the hospital for some stitches, you also have health insurance to cover your mental health, just like your physical health. And I think for a lot of reasons, people didn't realize that happened or it was difficult to get care for a variety of reasons. But mental health parity ensures that you should be able to get that mental health care the same way you would physical health care. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. That's exactly what is intended with the parity laws. So we have parity laws. And what we also have is a delivery system, a healthcare delivery system, where certain types of treatment are harder to get. And so the provisions in, in this 
addressing barriers to care law address all of those structural barriers. And for example, a simple thing like a mental health checkup. I think uh, some of the, uh, you know, the things that people used to note, the shortage of caregivers and clinicians, the act seems to address that, the shortage of beds and, and wards. You noted that, that there would be more locations and centers and, and units where people would be able to get care. And that is uh, nothing but really, really good news, I think. It is. As we become more accessible at community-based locations, it supports what we were talking about earlier about the importance of early identification leading to effective treatment. Mm -hmm. The earlier that people can identify their need or their desire to seek treatment, having a readily accessible location to get that treatment in a timely way go hand in hand. If Mm. what happens is the person who's seeking help ends up on a wait list, right? then that motivation to seek help at that moment isn't as realized in, in terms of the impact to helping them achieve what they're seeking in their own lives for, for treatment and improvement. Mm. So having the ability to have urgent care or crisis deployment if it's needed in community-based locations and readily accessible ongoing treatment in the community, in all parts of the state where people seek treatment, is really important in achieving not just the goals of mental health that might be post-pandemic related problems, but also other types of mental health challenges or conditions that people may have been managing pre-COVID. You know, we talk all the time in suicide prevention. We do a program called Talk Saves Lives, and we talk about having that conversation with someone who you may feel might be struggling and how important the timing is and how important it is to speak up. Because if you can put time between a person who is having a suicidal crisis and the, and the means to take their life, you can often save their life. But as you note, getting them care at that point or soon thereafter, is a really, really important piece of the puzzle. And if the, the care isn't there, well, then the outcome may be a little bit different. That's very true. We sometimes underestimate the power and importance of being available to talk and listen. That's something that any one of us can do. Encouraging a person to openly talk and actively listen to what people are saying to us is the first step to seeking help. Boy, and it's, it's so easy to do and really, uh, you know, just low-hanging fruit. That's an easy thing to do. How are you doing? I'm a little concerned about you. Can you tell me what's going on? Anybody can, uh, can do that. Anyone can do that, and I encourage us all to do that. And as we've talked about, the ability to help people access treatment in timely ways goes so far in helping the person to manage whatever they're struggling with at that time. I want to ask about one more component to the uh, ABC Act, but also just a, a general trend in the last couple of years, and that is having sort of alternative response to 911 calls uh, so that when law enforcement is called in on a 911 call, someone may be having a mental health crisis or a suicidal crisis, having uh, mental health professionals on the call as well has really sort of changed the way we think about responding to those calls and has changed the outcome in a positive way uh, for many of these calls. 
It has. Many communities also have co-response teams who can deploy out to locations in an emergency situation. And it changes how the situation is responded to, how the person is then encouraged to seek the help that's needed. And it, it does go a long way. And another important change that has occurred recently is the suicide prevention hotline has been moved to an easy to remember three digit call line, the 988 line. Again, something that's been in the works for a while, and it's just it was so wonderful to see that finally uh, initiated. A three-digit number that you know when you call that you're going to be connected to care and to help and to resources if you're having a suicidal crisis or if you're with someone that you care about and you're calling on behalf of that person. That care is right there on the other end of the uh, of the phone. The, the importance of the suicide prevention hotlines as you noted earlier in our conversation, are that they are a supportive person to listen and to talk the person through what they're experiencing. The support that's available through the 988 Lifeline system is truly life-saving. Commissioner Brooke Doyle from the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. Any new initiatives, anything we can watch for in the, uh, in the coming? I know the implementation of the, uh, the ABC Act, just seeing it and you know, seeing it funded and seeing it start to be implemented is very, very exciting. But uh, are there other uh, initiatives that we should be aware of that are coming our way in the days ahead? Yes. The 24-7 helpline that I referred to and the Community Behavioral Health Centers will all be coming online in January 2023. We, uh, we love speaking with you. Thanks for all your work and your department's work on providing care and access, increasing access to care for all of us in the, uh, in the Commonwealth. Commissioner Brooke Doyle of the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health, great sharing time with you. Appreciate you being with us. And thank you very much. We appreciate you helping to get the word out. Hi, it's Jen Tui from Magic 106.7. If you're having thoughts of suicide, tell someone you trust. If you're concerned about a loved one, speak up. Find out about warning signs and more at AFSP.org. Hi, this is Karen Blake from Magic 106.7. One in four Americans will experience a mental health condition during their lifetime. Seeing a mental health professional is a sign of strength. Let's create a culture that's smart about mental health. Find out more at AFSP.org. Welcome back. I'm David O'Leary. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. Our mental health, it affects so much of who we are, our home life, our work life, relationships. And talking about mental health really can save lives. We're talking with Professor Matt Nock from Harvard University. Matthew K. Nock is a professor and the chair of the Department of Psychology at Harvard, research scientist with Mass General Hospital, also with Boston Children's Hospital. Matt has uh, dedicated pretty much his life's work to the understanding of why people self-harm, why they behave in ways that are harmful to themselves with an emphasis on suicide and other forms of self-harm. I, th- I think that's a, a fair assessment of your, of your career track. We thank you for your work, Dr. Nock. Welcome. Great. Thank you. That is all accurate. And thank you so much for having me and for focusing on this issue. How did you get into this line of research? I became interested in suicide and self-injury when I was an undergraduate back in the 1990s studying at Boston University. 
And I did a study abroad program in London and worked in a psychiatric hospital where there were a lot of suicidal self-injurious patients and was perplexed by the problem and, and surprised at how little we knew about how to best treat people who wanted to hurt themselves and kill themselves and realized how big of a problem it is, that it's one of the leading causes of death on the planet and wanted to do all I could in my life and career to try and better understand, predict and prevent self-harm. Boy, when I think back to the 90s, and um, which is about the time I started volunteering with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, what what we didn't know about mental health and suicide, I mean, we've come a, a long way, particularly in how we view it and how we talk about mental health and suicide. How has that changed in your view over, over the recent years? It's changed a lot. And actually, you mentioned the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. My first job out of college after my time in London, was working at the American, what was then called the American Suicide Foundation. Mm-hmm. And back then, we thought about suicide, we talked about suicide very differently, and, and changed the name of that organization from the American Suicide Foundation because of the work of Jack Kevorkian, who at the time was helping people kill themselves, yeah. uh, became the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Mm-hmm. There's been, there's still a lot of stigma around around suicide, and people don't like talking about it. Congress doesn't like funding it. There, there's There's a real dearth of research on the problem. We're talking about it more and more. I think stigma has decreased over the past 20, 30 years, but there is still a lot of stigma around, around suicide and, and people don't like talking about it and thinking about it and, and addressing it. Have those changes in how we talk about it, how we think about it, really, has that sort of changed your work? Is it easier to get other students to dedicate their work to this mission now that we're a little more able to comfortably talk about it in polite society? It is. I think the, the number of students, trainees, uh, doctors focused on suicide and trying to better understand and prevent it has certainly increased over the past 20, 30 years, but there's still a really, really far way to go. I often think about you know, how we as a society have changed the way we think about and talk about and address problems like cancer, HIV, AIDS, where earlier in history, they were not talked about, not addressed. We, we ignored them because we were probably frightened by them. And that wasn't really helpful. And it was only when we started really talking about the problems, the, the illnesses, the conditions, and addressing them that research increased, science improved, and treatment improved. And those problems were better addressed, not cured, but we have much better treatments for things like cancer, HIV, HIV AIDS. And that big change hasn't really happened yet for suicide. And I'm, I'm hoping that it will. And that programs like this, really talking about the problem of suicide, addressing it, will lead people to think about it more, address it more, and help to eradicate it. Boy, that was a reminder that we didn't used to talk about cancer in that way. We called it the big yeah. C. We didn't mm-hmm. mention it on TV shows. We talked about it in hushed voices. Yeah, it was whispered. And of course now, you know, somebody's fundraising for cancer or different types of, of cancer. Everybody's very, very happy to give. It's uh, We've passed that point where we can talk about it. It's interesting also to hear you talk about funding because being able to talk about it openly is a is a real is a real first step, I guess, in that suicide prevention puzzle because we can't start to fund it if we're not even willing to talk about it. And suicide prevention, mental health, that's not really funded in the way that other health crises are for this country. It's not. I mean, suicides for, for a long time has been one of the top 10 leading causes of death in the U.S. It's a second leading cause of death among people ages 15 to 34. Mm. And it receives about a third of the amount of funding as the yeah. other causes of death that, that surround it. Mm. So we would need to triple the funding for suicide prevention just, just to put it on par with other leading causes of death. And it, yeah. it's striking to, to see that. We, we 
are paying so little attention and doing so little to address such a leading cause of death. I don't fully understand why. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about suicide, trying to prevent it. I think it's just, you know, it's a scary thing. And it, we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know who's going to try and kill themselves. And so things that are uncertain, things that are scary, we tend to ignore and not put a lot of focus on. And so I think that's something that we have to change as a society. I know one of the things that people will ask me just anecdotally, knowing, you know, I volunteer with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And especially in the last couple of years, they'll say, hey, the pandemic, boy, I bet things are tough. Maybe you've seen numbers go up. I, I think the, the statistics would indicate otherwise, actually, that numbers overall have eked down just a, just a little bit. But has the pandemic and people's awareness uh, and maybe willingness to talk about mental health a little more in the last couple of years, has that impacted your work or changed the way uh, you think about your research? Absolutely. I think the pandemic has changed a lot, a lot of what all, all of us do. We've been doing a lot of research trying to understand how people think about suicide and how suicidal thoughts ebb and flow in daily life by putting smartphone apps on people's phones and having them report several times a day about their suicidal thinking. And we were doing this before the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, what we noticed is that people were, of course, staying home much more, but they were also feeling really isolated. And we saw suicidal thinking increase. In adults, we didn't see it increase early on in the pandemic in adolescents. Not fully sure why. We think maybe it was because adolescents were more digitally connected than, than adults tend to be and so weren't as impacted early on. Yep. But as the pandemic has worn on, we've seen suicidal thinking increase among adolescents as well. And there's been a, a good amount of media attention on, on what's called the boarding crisis. There's a, a lot of people going to hospitals now for mental health crises yeah. and boarding, staying, sleeping in emergency departments because there aren't enough psychiatric beds and hospitals to treat people who are in acute psychiatric crises. So the pandemic, I think, had a big impact on mental health uh, and an impact on our, on, our, on our work in terms of how we're studying suicide. We're being much, much more, uh, having more of a digital focus in our work because we're not able to have people come into our laboratory for research studies. And so we're doing a lot more with smartphones, with social media, trying to understand suicide in people's daily lives. Yeah. Boy, that data and those statistics, I imagine, is so important to your work. I know that the way we talk about mental health and the way we talk about suicide, virtually the way that suicide is reported when someone dies by suicide, it's not always accurately reported that way or recorded that way. A couple of years ago, AFSP did some work on the National Violent Death Reporting Service, which was basically this thing uh, nationally that would uh, accurately record if someone died by suicide, not for the reason of attaching any significance to it uh, on, a, on, a, on a personal level, but more so that we knew who was dying by suicide. That data is really vitally important if we're going to study suicide. Can you talk a little bit about why that data is so important? Yeah, it's surprising to me as well how much error there can be in reporting on suicide. Suicides and, and say, accidental overdoses often get confused and we're unsure how a person died, whether it was an accident, whether it was intentional or not. And it's really important to have an accurate picture of whether a person died by suicide just to get a sense of the scope of the problem, changes in, problem, in, in the problem of suicide over time, in areas geographically, just to get a sense of how big of an issue it is, whether it's changing and what might be causing these changes to help us understand what our best treatments might be. Are there advancements in research? I mean, you talking about the smartphones and people able to record in real time. That's mm -hmm. really thrilling to me because it feels like it's very up to the minute data and research that you're getting. Are there other advancements that are exciting to you these days? 
There is. There's, there's a, a lot that I'm excited about the past 10 years or so in suicide research and in mental health research more generally. One of the big problems with suicide is we don't know. It's hard to predict. It's like a, a, a tornado or a hurricane. It's a, it's a rare, deadly event for which we don't know when it's going to occur in time and place. And what's been exciting is in the past 10 years, we now have a lot more digital information about people's daily lives. So we're able to build statistical models that can better predict who's at risk when they're at risk in the same way, again, that we, that we can better predict tornadoes, hurricanes, and so try and alert people and, and save lives. We're trying to do the same with suicide. Mm. And so by using digital electronic health records, social media data, smartphone data, Fitbit data, we can, with people's permission, collect information from them about how they're doing, what's happening in their lives, how they're sleeping, how active they are, how they're feeling, whether they're thinking about suicide, so we can get more accurate in the moment predictions about who's at risk and when they're at risk so that we can then digitally beam them interventions that can try and keep them safe. And so we've seen real improvements in our ability to predict who's at risk and when they're at risk in the past 10 years. And so there's a lot of excitement in the suicide research and prevention community about what might be possible in the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I've heard a little bit of talk about the biomarkers, which I understand to be things that you could almost test the way you can test for high cholesterol or high blood pressure, uh, a swab or a blood test or something that might show signs that someone may be at elevated risk for suicide. Is there anything to that? Is that still a little ways off? I think it's a, a lot ways off. <laughs> there's, there's always a lot of sort of anticipation, excitement about having a, a biological marker for suicide. And there's, since I've started my career 30 or so years ago, there's been talk about, is there a biomarker, a biological marker that says this person's at risk for suicide? And there's been a lot of hype, but so far the data haven't really supported the idea of a biomarker for suicide. Instead, there are biological markers for things like mood, ability to regulate our emotions, uh, impulsivity, and so on. So the ingredients that increase risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. But to date, there hasn't been you know, a marker for suicide. Instead, it seems like there's a collection of biomarkers that can be combined to tell us a person's level of, of predisposition for, for thinking about suicide or for having a really negative mood, feeling a lot of psychological pain. Again, the, the ingredients that, that can combine to increase a person's risk for suicide. Yeah, I imagine I'm sitting here, I, I suppose, sitting here going, well, then how, how do I know I don't have it? Mm-hmm. You know, that people want an, they want an answer. They want to know yes or no. Is this going to happen to me or someone, someone I love, which I guess would... Yeah be the motivation for going, when are we going to have this? You know, maybe a, yeah. maybe a long way off. Yeah, we know, we know predictors. And we know that, you know, women think about suicide much more than men. Men die by suicide four times more often than women. In the U.S., mm-hmm. middle-aged and older white men are at especially high risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., people who are identified as being white are significantly higher risk of suicide. So we know, you know, segments of the population who are at increased risk. We know there are periods of increased risk, and so we can sort of zoom in and, and try and find people at higher risk. But suicide cuts across, you know, people from all demographics, people from all income levels, people from all education levels die by suicide. So it's, it's, a, it's a universal problem. Mm-hmm. We also know that about half of people who die by suicide come in to see a doctor in the month before they die. Yeah. So people are not always saying, hey, I'm thinking about suicide. Often it's I'm not feeling well, I'm not sleeping or having trouble with drinking too much or using drugs or feeling depressed or whatever predisposition there might be. So we know that people are, are coming in asking for help. We're not yet good enough as a profession at identifying 
which people coming in for clinical help, for clinical care, are at highest risk and how can we best help them. That's something we need to get better at and we're, and we're trying to get better at. Yeah, and AFSP and I know others in this space are working with caregivers to, to do just that, to, to, to try to identify who those people are, see if they're at risk and see if interventions can be made to save them. Boy, talking about mental health and suicide, it's just, it really is so important. And uh, I, I just love that for so long, you've sort of committed yourself to having an open, normalized conversation about it. Because it really, it informs the research. It just makes it easier for people to share their story with others and, and hopefully get care if they need it. Absolutely. Uh, it's, again, something that people often don't like to talk about. People who are having thoughts of suicide often are, are a little hesitant to share their experience with others for fear of how people are going to respond, for fear of being hospitalized against their wishes. I think it can only help to have more open conversation about suicide with each other, with our kids, with our spouses, with our partners, with our friends. It's something, you know, I've I've been focused on this problem for years, and it's something that I often am hesitant to ask people about, ask friends about. Friends are saying, hey, I'm really down. It can be awkward to ask, are you thinking about suicide? Have you thought about killing yourself? But I do. I you know, to try to normalize those conversations, have those conversations. I think better to, better to have them than to not and to miss an opportunity to reach out and um, see how someone's doing and try and help them. Matt Nock is, the, uh, is a professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, or sci- research scientist with Mass General Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital. Really, really great to catch up and to hear your thoughts. And thanks for taking time to be with us tonight for I'm Listening, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thank you again. And thanks for having me on. And thank you again for focusing on, on this issue. It's Kendra from Morning Magic. Asking someone directly if they're thinking about suicide won't put the idea in their head. Most people will be relieved someone has started a conversation. Find out how to talk with someone you're concerned about at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP.org. This is I'm Listening from Odyssey and Magic 106.7. I'm Morning Magic's David O'Leary. thought we'd spend this last part of the program, the last few minutes that we have together, finding out a little bit more about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Jessica Vanderstad is the executive director of the Massachusetts chapter of this organization that has chapters all across the country. Massachusetts one of its oldest, uh, but uh, works to bring hope to those who are impacted by suicide and really works to save lives. Jessica, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about first how you first became connected with AFSP and and what the organization does. So, you know, I often tell people that um, walking into Starbucks doesn't doesn't change your life often, but for me, it did. (laughs) Um, I was in San Diego, and it was about six months after I had lost my dad to suicide, and I went to go get a cup of coffee, and I saw this flyer in Starbucks for a walk to fight suicide. And from there, I got involved as a volunteer, initially in San Diego, and then a staff position became open, and I never imagined a career, you know, working in suicide prevention and mental health, but um, I found my place with AFSP, and I'm, I'm honored to be involved 12-plus years later. You know, I, I always find myself saying that the mental health and suicide and wanting to prevent suicide, it, it's not something that really is on the radar of many people until it is, until there's a loss, either of someone close to you or, uh, you know, you're supporting a friend who's had a loss or something like that. The walks that you mentioned take place at the end of September and October all across the U.S., and those are a really, really powerful way for those who have lost someone to suicide to connect with others who've had a similar experience. 
They are. And, you know, they're called the out of the darkness community walks. And I've lost count of how many we have across the nation, but um, chances are that there is one in a community near you, um, no matter where you're listening here today. And most people get involved, I think, are here of our organization through these out-of-the-darkness walks to fight suicide. Um, but I will say, you know, in recent years, I think more people have realized, even if they haven't been personally touched by suicide or mental health, they're realizing that, you know, mental health, depression can affect anyone. Mm-hmm. And um, there's such a need to increase awareness in our community. So with these walks, I would say, you know, last year and this year, as we've gone back to being in person, they're growing. And it's been incredible to see, you know, walks that used to have 500 people now having a 1,000 um, in our communities. And it's just people coming out to support the cause and create awareness. Yeah, as we noted a little earlier in the hour with uh, Dr. Matt Nock from Harvard and the commissioner of the Mass Department of Public Health, Commissioner Doyle, that especially over the last couple of years, people's willingness to acknowledge the importance of their mental health in a way that for many people was a really, really hard thing to do, you know, before these last couple of years is, uh, is very, very important. If, if there's been a silver lining to the pandemic, maybe people's attention to mental health and mental health care has been a small, a small silver lining. It has. And I think the willingness for corporations, community partners to get involved in organizations like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, you know, supporting their employees, creating wellness programs, internal and external. It's, um, it's an opportunity just to reach out to people and let them know that they're not alone. I, that's a really good point that you make, because I, I know AFSP has a number of programs that they make available, all free, to community organizations and schools and, and corporations and businesses who are interested in learning more. Can you talk just a little bit about some of those in the short time we have left? We have some great programs, everything from your Talk Saves Lives, which is our kind of suicide prevention 101 general you know, community education awareness program, to more specific programs like It's Real Teens and Mental Health or the our workplace program. Um, you know, people ask, you know, how do I get a speaker? And it's like, give us a platform, give us a virtual meeting, give us an in-person um, office, and we'd be happy to get this information out to um, your your community. And all of it's free, no cost to the organization or to the to the business or community organization. No, so we have a lot of general community programs. I mean, some of them that I just mentioned that are absolutely no cost. We can also provide resources for health centers or EAP. Um, we do have some programs that are more higher level that you know have a cost associated with. But in general, our community programs are at no cost. Last thing I want to ask you about, there's a number of walks, including um, out in the suburbs, western Massachusetts, and down on the Cape. One of the bigger ones is the Boston Walk, which will take place in October. Can you just give us the dates on on that and and how to register and how to be involved? So we have walks coming up. We have seven left in the state of Mass. So you can visit afsp.org slash walks to find your nearest walk. And yes, on October 22nd, we are ending the walk season 2022 with two walks, Springfield and Boston are on the same day. So no matter where you are, you can come join us. Boston will be held, as I mentioned, Saturday, October 22nd on the Boston Common. It's free to register, so we'll help you come out and join us. 
And that website, AFSP.org, of course, if you want to volunteer or be involved in a walk, but there is a ton of information about mental health and about how to talk to someone who you may be concerned about or, or maybe how to sort of do a self-check on your own mental health and to, and to see how you're doing. If you're at all interested, we'd encourage you to go to AFSP.org. And of course, if you're struggling or caring for someone who is struggling and you feel like they you know, may be considering suicide, 988 is the number to call and you can be put in touch pretty quickly with a, a caregiver to, uh, or at least someone to give you some, some information on getting your services and getting your care. Yes, you can always um, text as well. Text TALK to 741-741. Jessica Vanderstad is the executive director of the Massachusetts chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, a national organization that works to save lives and bring hope to those impacted by suicide. Thanks for sharing your story with us and, and for being a part of I'm Listening tonight. We appreciate it. Thanks for being part of the movement to stop suicide. Well, that will wrap up our first hour of Odyssey's I'm Listening. Our thanks to the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health for sponsoring tonight's program. If you're struggling or caring for someone who is, please remember, 988 is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can also text 741-741. To learn more about suicide prevention, reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at AFSP.org. Stay with us for hour number two of Odyssey's I'm Listening. It's coming up next. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.